0: greater problem we have in the church the church at large the church of the 21st century is not so much deer wandering in but sheep wandering away spiritually drifting wandering sheep and James will end his letter by the way if you have your bibles turn to chapter 5 the last two verses with a warning related to this wandering, this drifting away from the truth, from the assembly, from the flock. He writes in the closing verses of his letter this warning and encouragement to the the scattered believers throughout the Roman Empire. At verse 19 of chapter 5, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, I've read a few commentaries, and I've certainly heard a few sermons over my days that would use this text as a soul-winning text for evangelism. Now, there's certainly some truth to that kind of application. But the fact that you read the words sinner and save and death immediately lead you to assume that James cannot be talking about a believer. But that's exactly who James is talking about. This text is not about evangelism. This text is about reconciliation, about spiritual restoration. It's about the prodigal who's wandered away, who has turned back to the path, turned back as it were, toward home. See, James gets to the end of his letter, and he realistically and correctly assumes that there will be some among them, among the brethren, among the believers, a believer among the believers, who's going to wander away from the truth they've just learned from this letter. There are going to be times Maybe even seasons when someone among them is not going, as he's already commanded in chapter 4, just looking there a little bit, they're going to stray from submitting to God. They're going to drift away. They're not going to resist the devil. They're not going to draw near to God. They're not going to cleanse their hands. They're not going to purify their hearts. They're not going to mourn over sin and and weep. They're not going to humble themselves in the presence of the Lord. And that's just a few of his imperatives. He knows that there will be some, if not all, at some point in time who will experience a day, a moment, an hour, a month, maybe a year where they will not surrender to the Lord. And so he ends this letter by delivering this warning. He'll describe the runaway... And then he will describe the rescuer. Now, there are two primary characters in this scene that we'll study, the prodigal and the pursuer, and then we'll notice the prize. Let's take a closer look at the prodigal, verse 19 again, a little slower. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth literally my brethren if if any one of you anyone among you anyone among you strays from the truth he's talking about a, a believer from among the brethren straying drifting away from the truth listen an unbeliever does not stray from the truth they've never believed it they've never stood on it They've never welcomed it. In fact, you go through the New Testament, and I did a little survey, an unbeliever is blinded by unbelief to the truth, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He is offended by the truth, 1 Peter 2.8. He suppresses the truth, Romans 1.18. He's never come to the truth because he'd rather believe a lie about God than the truth about God, Romans 1:25. And so he refuses to receive to himself the truth and make it his own, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 10. It may sound odd to hear it this way, but it's true that a believer is the only person who can actually wander away from the truth. A prodigal is a prodigal because he belongs to the family of whom he's left. In fact, James uses the aorist tense for this verb to wander or to stray away. That tense reveals this is someone who is not habitually living this life of straying. This is a reference to an occasional drifting away. In fact, I am convinced that a believer drifts every day and has to return every day and drifts. And returns through the discipline of the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and as we'll learn, the assembly of God. This is a reference here to a backsliding believer, so to speak. Uh, the believer in Galatians chapter 6 who's become tangled up, stuck in sin. Uh, 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 that, that person who is now in spiritual danger and decline, he, they're, they're going to drift into purposelessness. They're going to waste their lives, which is not the reason God has left them on the planet. To add to this idea, James uses the word translated wander or drift. He uses the word planao, which gives us our English transliterated word planet. These bodies around the sun we call planets that seem to wander. In the sky. The truth is, you've probably learned as a Christian by now, if you've come to know him in recent days, that wandering from the path, that drifting, is very easy to do. You don't have to do something really terrible (laughs) to find your spiritual house is not in order. Just stop mowing the lawn. Stop pulling weeds. Don't paint anything. Don't repair anything. Stop vacuuming the the carpet or doing the dishes. Don't sweep the driveway. Don't replace any light bulbs. And before you know it, you're in a mess. It was just a lot of little things that added up. See, James is warning us here with his usual soft and kind and compassionate language. Don't don't mess around with the truth. Don't barter with the truth. Don't negotiate with what you've learned in James. Don't don't put it in little packages and say, I'll take that one, that one, that one, that one, and that one, and I won't take that one, this one, or that one. See, This is the meaning of Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1, where the believer is challenged to pay close attention to what he's heard so that you will not drift away. Drifting from the truth is always connected at some point with a decision or two or three. You just thought you'd coast along and you've discovered that you never drift forward. If you're not moving forward... You're automatically drifting away or backward. It's either regression or progression. One author that I was reading said that the Christian life is, is is like learning how to ride the bicycle. You don't learn riding backwards and you can't sit on the seat still. You gotta move forward. D.A. Carson put it this way when he wrote, We do not drift toward holiness. We do not automatically drift toward godliness prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstitions and call them faith. We drift toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We drift toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated there is the undertow of our fallen nature. You get up in the morning and the pull will be to drift away from the truth. I love the, the realism. We don't hear enough of it in the church of Robert Robinson who admitted the reality this morning. and He put it in the lyrical form in that classic hymn in the late 1700s. "O to grace... How great a debtor, daily, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy grace, Lord, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I what? Feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, walk away. Here's my heart, O taken. seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Prone to wander. That's the reality. James gets to the end of his letter and he says, you know what? You're going to be prone to wander away from this truth. You're going to be prone to drift, to disobey. Drifting is an ever-present danger in the life of a disciple. So he speaks with frank reality. He's not the author that writes a letter that sort of pats you on the head and says, you know, now now I I I believe in you and I know that you're going to remember everything we discussed, and <laughs> you, you got it done. It took your pastor thirty time, thirty sermons to get through it, but but I know you got it all. And I know you're gonna do it. I know you won't have any problems. No? If you look back at the text, he says, he says, My brethren, if, if that is the that, that is in the Greek construction, the probability of experience. If, and this is probably going to be your experience. If you drift, here's something that I want everyone else around you who knows the Lord to do. And now he turns our attention from the prodigal to the pursuer. Look next in verse 19. Here's the appearance of someone who who turns him back. Verse 20. He turns a sinner from the error of his way. The word for turn is a compound word which means literally to turn that person around. In other words, they're heading in the wrong direction and the pursuer runs up, interacts, and turns him around to head once again in the right direction. Now the word turn may be translated in your Bibles convert. Convert. It is used for conversion of an unbeliever who turns to God for salvation. It's used that way in Acts chapter 14, verse 15. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. But the word can also be used for a believer who turns in repentance to once again follow after the Lord. And that's the context of what James has just said. Hey, there are going to be believers among believers who are going to drift away. Somebody needs to go and turn them around This is his idea. In fact, I found it interesting as I tracked this verb through the scriptures, to turn. That was also used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. For God turning back to his people. The Lord used this word when he told Peter. He said, listen, Peter, after you deny me, you're going to be turned. Same word. You're going to be turned, and you will, after being turned back around, strengthen the brethren, Luke twenty two thirty two. 32. Jesus used the same word for Peter returning to his walk of obedience that James uses here in this text for the prodigal who is turning around on the path and heading back in the right direction, which, by the way, then opens up this This entire conversation, which to me is amazing, it is a wonderful perspective that I don't want us to miss, so let me me briefly mention it. We know, we know that, theologically, that that God ultimately turns someone around, right? We know that it's God's spirit that ultimately convicts that unrepentant believer's heart and, and turns him around. We know that's the work of God, but God uses other believers too. And in the language and the perspective of of James, the believer is the agent of restoration. Without any theological apology, without any hesitation, without any further explanation, James is describing the pursuing believer as the one who turns around the prodigal. which means we have a ministry that maybe we uh, avoid. There are some misconceptions about pursuing sinning believers. One commentator rightly interpreting and applying this text made the comment that we not only win the lost, we win the saved as we pursue those who are sliding backward. There are some misconceptions about this ministry. I'll give you a couple of them. Some would say it's wrong to intrude into a, sin, a sinning believer's life uninvited. You shouldn't do that uninvited. The, the prodigal didn't ask me to give him my opinion. I mean, how often is a backsliding Christian going to invite you over to inform them they're heading in the wrong direction? No, the prodigal stops inviting you over because whenever you're around them, they sense the guilt of their waywardness. And you might even tell them, I want you to know I'm praying for you. I'm concerned about you. I love you enough to tell you that, that, that I want you back in fellowship with Christ and the church. Anybody who throws themselves in the way of a backsliding Christian will most often arrive uninvited there aren't going to be invitations. I'm I'm running away from God. Would you come over and tell me that? In fact, part of the challenge is catching up with them as they slide down the path. Another reason people hesitate to get involved is because they bought into the misconception that it's not very loving to confront someone about sin. I mean, bad news is not very loving, right? So the believer and The average church in this country and culture now puts on the blinders and whenever they're around that sinning believer, they assume the best thing they could do and the most loving thing they could do is never bring up their sin, never deal with a sin. Paul told the Thessalonian believers to warn the disobedient Christian as a brother, 2 Thessalonians 3.15. Disobedient Christian, warn him as a brother, How do brothers warn each other? I grew up with three of them. They warned me all the time to get back on the path, and I rarely strayed. (laughs) So we grow up and we assume, well, you know, we we outgrew that. No, warned the, the disobedient Christian like a brother. Are you sure you want to do that? You really want to go there? That looks dangerous to me. That could spell trouble. It's actually unloving to allow your Christian friend to get off track without a warning, without any expression of concern, without you even telling them you're praying for them. Just, I'm just going to not mention anything. Would a doctor be loving if they discovered cancer in your body? But because that's going to be bad news, they're just going to keep that to themselves. And so they come back into the examination room and with the results. But he puts on the blinders of, of love and kindness. And he tells you something like it's nothing. In fact, a couple weeks of vacation will take care of it. <laughs> I like that kind of doctor. Don't you? That's great. It'll take a couple of weeks. We want to go to that. No, we really don't. The last time I went to my doctor a few months ago, my doctor told me I needed to lose weight. I was extremely unkind. <laughs> it wasn't nice, but in the end, it was the truth, and I needed to hear it, and so I'm, I'm, I'm cutting back. I have not had a donut in you won't believe how long. A staff meeting this past week put right down in front of me on the table a big box of Krispy Kreme donuts of all kinds, uh, lemon-filled, and Boston cream-filled and chocolate uh, glazed and, and regular glazed. And I want you to know that I did not eat one of them. I did not eat one of them. Don't be so easily deceived now, okay? Back to the text, all right? There's one more misconception among believers, not only that it's wrong to intrude into the prodigal's life uninvited, or that it's unloving to confront their sin, but thirdly, the misconception that it's none of our business. Hey, (laughs) it isn't our business. If it's anybody's business, it's you guys on the elder team. Are you pastors? You've been trained to do that. You deal with it. James, would you notice, is saying the exact opposite thing. Notice again, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, call the pastor. No. And one, implication, antecedent, among you, one among you, the brethren, turns him back. You see, in the mind of the Spirit of God through James the writer, this happens to be the business of other believers. And the person who says, well, you know, I've never seen that done. Well, they may not be so much reflecting on the integrity of the biblical command here. They may be reflecting on the integrity of the church and other Christians. What would you think if your house was on fire this afternoon and you got home, you called the firefighters and they showed up with sirens blazing and in all their gear and and they came over to you where you were standing and they said to you, hey, is this your house? And you said, yes. And they said, well, don't worry about it. Um, It'll burn itself out in a couple hours. What would you think? You'd say, do your job. Your job. Well, What if you saw a policeman standing there watching a gang of boys beat up another boy? you know that immediately you would think to yourself, why isn't that policeman doing his job? You see, a Christian who sees his brother or sister drifting away from the truth and says, it's none of my business, does not understand their assignment. It is their job. It actually is our business. And you know why? Because we, of all people, understand that the stakes are so high. Would you notice the prize involved as the pursuer chases down the prodigal? Look at the prize in verse 20. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way is going to accomplish two things. First, he will save the prodigal's soul from death. We'll call this a rescue back from spiritual calamity. The pursuer is going to save the prodigal soul from death. Now what does James mean? James could mean physical death. Death and early death. The result of what the New Testament warns us of as the result of the discipline, which is unheeded, and repentance, which is not pursued. If it's, a, if it's the loss of salvation, it doesn't make any sense to discipline anybody and certainly not warn them of an early death. They are facing spiritual calamity. John describes the possibility of physical death as discipline in 1 John 5, 16-17. Paul described in uh, the church in Corinth as having had among them those who now sleep, that is, those who've died because of unrepentant sin, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30. Watch yourselves, John the Apostle wrote in Second John 1, eight, that you do not lose your full reward. That as you face the discipline of God and you stand before him as it were, with, with an unfilled basket, so to speak, of reward. you forfeited by disobedience and unrepentance the fullest of rewards. It could mean physical death. James could also be using the word for death as a metaphor. That is, for a death-like existence. In other words, even though the believer is saved, and you cannot be unborn once you've been born again, But those who do not repent are facing the discipline of the word, the discipline perhaps of the woodshed, the discipline perhaps even of the wooden box that is the casket. And in that process though the believer is saved, he's languishing in guilt and purposelessness and bitterness. Why? Because of drifting away. But then a brother or a sister says, you know, this is my job. This is this is my role and he comes along and he confronts us and we recognize by virtue of their involvement that god's grace is knocking at the door that the sin which has become an obstacle to fellowship with christ which we we gain and regain throughout the day we confess it and we're rescued from what might be a wasted, death like life. Have you ever talked to a prodigal? And you've seen the hollowness of their eyes? And you've sensed the shriveled up state of their soul? Have you ever taken on this job and you've gone to them and challenged them and you feel like you're having a tug of war with the devil? You've got one arm and the devil has the other. And you know that they're, they're, they're walking down a path that is death-like, unrewarding. Their spiritual vitality because of unrepentant sin Dominating. So this is a rescue back from spiritual calamity. Secondly, this is a reconciliation back to spiritual communion. Notice again, he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death, and notice, and will cover a multitude of sins. Peter would use the same expression a little later in his epistle, love covers a multitude of sins. Don't get the idea, as many have, that this means we sweep sin under the rug and act like nothing ever happened. And that's really loving. That isn't. The pursuer does not help the prodigal by catching up to him and then sitting down with him to work on a press release. Let's, let's say something bland to the public. Lord of the assembly. There is a Greek word, by the way, they're fairly intelligent people, for hide. It's not the word used here. This isn't hiding sin. This isn't sweeping it under a rug. This isn't explaining it away. This is exposing it and confessing it so it is covered, that is dealt with. The prodigal is coming clean. That's how you know he's turning around. No more excuses It's exposure and without explanation, confession. The audience of Jews, of course, to whom James is writing would have immediately recognized the concept of covering sin. It was used throughout the Old Testament where to have sins covered was to have sins forgiven. There is that added nuance then that whatever God has forgiven is no longer seen, right? And that works for the church as well. One commentator said the prodigal is not branded now permanently in the church as someone who once went astray, but as part of a company and welcomed back by people who have also been forgiven. A multitude of sins is covered. What a prize for the pursuer. To passionately run after, he, she, the agent of reconciliation, running after the prodigal on a rescue mission. A believing brother or sister is drifting away. Yes, we win the lost. How about the drifting believer? I mean, how many churches have evangelism nights where they gather together and they're trained, and, and we do too, to go after those who don't know Christ. Can you imagine a group of people gathering together to pray for those that are drifting away? And okay, now how are we going to strategize and pray to go after them? This one hopes and prays that these will be reconciled to spiritual communion with Christ and His church. Perhaps I'm speaking today to a prodigal Maybe you're the one on the run. Maybe it's been a few days, a few weeks, months, maybe even years. And you have drifted to the point where you're not sure if it isn't too late. Maybe you've drifted too far away. The sins have mounted up and you can no longer see The shore. The view back is no longer visible. I want you to follow the sound of my voice. He will pardon you, the prophet Isaiah said. How many sins will he forgive? A multitude. His grace is never diminished. He's never too weary. His patience is the patience of a prodigal father who waits. And in that particular instance, the son returned only to discover to his surprise that forgiveness was not earned. It was available and free. Turn around. Maybe that's the message to you. Turn around, turn around, and come home. Listen to a verse written to Christians, not unbelievers, but to Christians. If you will confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness that has to do with the daily practical outworking of of a confessing christian confess your sins plural specific sins that come to mind confess your sins to your savior that block your communion that dissipate Your joy that stifle your soul and your sins which you confess will be covered. In practical terms, they will be dealt with and done away with and thus no longer seen. Not because you stuffed them in a corner or in a closet or under the rug, but because you exposed them to your Savior and said, these are in the way. And he's ever ready to finish off this rescue and reconciliation process, which we, the believer, have been challenged to join in. I read one author who wrote of an amazing event during World War II, where in the spring of 1940, Hitler's armored tank division of Panzers were overrunning France. It's interesting to read how Churchill had said we've got to build tanks, and he had been involved in the early conception of this machine, and and, uh, England and the Allies really didn't pay much attention, but Hitler had already gone far in advance of their efforts, and he was just bowling over country after country. The Dutch had already surrendered, as had the Belgians, more than 250,000 British soldiers and 100,000 allied soldiers were stuck on the coast of France in the channel port of Dunkirk. They faced imminent capture and more than likely death. This article read, Hitler's troops only a few miles away and the hills of France closed in on an easy kill. The Royal Navy had enough ships to only pick up 17,000 men Only 17,000 of more than 300,000 could be rescued and taken to safety. Parliament was summoned and told, quote, to brace for hard and heavy tidings, end quote. And then while these troops watched, knowing their hopes were fading away, Suddenly, a bizarre fleet of ships and boats appeared on the horizon of the English Channel. Fishing boats, boats, tugboats, lifeboats, sailboats, yachts, an island ferry named Gracie Fields, and even the America's cup challenger, Endeavor, all manned by civilians, spontaneously, without any direct orders, Sped to the rescue. This ragtag armada rescued all the remaining troops, over 300,000 of them, and returned them to the shores of England. It remains one of the most remarkable, spontaneous naval rescue operations in history. Can you imagine? You've got no hope. Here comes a tugboat. (laughs) a lifeboat, a sailboat, somebody's yacht. Why? Because these are fellow soldiers, and they're trapped, and they need help. Think of the church as God's ragtag, armada <laughs> and aren't we boats of all kinds all shapes and sizes personalities backgrounds races ethnicities histories all of us flawed <laughs> we're bailing out water all as well we race we are pursuers of prodigals And we're willing to suffer the difficulties and the awkwardnesses and the rejections and the hard feelings by pursuing prodigals who are drifting away. See, James knew that after writing this letter, we'd need those who would obey this final command to join in on this search-and-rescue operation, commissioned and appreciated, first and foremost, by God. I haven't finished this letter yet. We haven't dealt with the period. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, perhaps God has brought someone to your heart and mind that needs from you interceding, interrupting, a note, a call, a letter. Maybe right now you just need to prepare your lifeboat or your tugboat or your yacht. Ask the Lord for wisdom and timing and grace and courage. Would that we would take responsibility for sheep who are wandering away. As you talk to the Lord, perhaps you're here and you're the prodigal. God in His grace has brought you here. Perhaps this message is the agent of reconciliation. Right where you stand, You're saying to the Lord, I'm going to turn around. Thank you for your full forgiveness. Not only in my standing as a believer, but daily as I confess my sin to you, which blocks communion and stifles my joy and dries up my soul. If you'd like to pray with me, that'd be an honor. We can help you in any way spiritually. I want us to close by singing the words to one of the stanzas of that hymn I I quoted. In fact, the one I quoted. As we acknowledge again how indebted we are to the grace of God daily. And then we ask Him to bind us by His grace and we admit to Him we're prone to wander And to even this day seal us for the courts above, give us that kind of attitude and perspective and obedience. So let's sing this stanza, Ode to Grace. Sing it out. O to Grace.